Hello, my name is Thornton Nguyen. I am a private advisor at the Rockefeller Global Family Office. And my role here is to work with um, wealthy families in and around the United States. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over. Thank you for coming on today. What does it mean to be Vietnamese to you? I think um, that's a really interesting question because I think that's a question that has evolved throughout my lifetime. Coming here uh, at the fall of Saigon, April 30th, 1975, being one of the boat refugees that fled the country. Early on in my childhood, I think there was a good amount of identity crisis because I didn't look like many people around me. As I got older, um, there was some resentment because I was so different. However, upon um, going to college where I found myself around a lot of Vietnamese people, I really truly appreciated what it meant to be Vietnamese, especially recognizing the struggles that my parents had to go through to put me where I was at that standpoint. Having um, continued to progress in my career, my identity and association has only gotten stronger as a result because now I understand exactly what others are going through, whether younger than me or older than me. And that's what's really driven um, my aspiration to continue to be more involved in the Vietnamese community in the United States and globally. How did you see yourself when you were growing up? Because we come from almost the same generation of Vietnamese American men. And I think that Vietnamese American women have a different struggle or, but I think as Vietnamese American men, we sort of have these different burdens to bear. What was it like for you? I think growing up in Columbia, Maryland, diversity was largely um, had black friends and white friends. And there weren't many Asians or Vietnamese at all. And I always struggled to identify on which side will I fall. And generally in high school, I ended up having a lot more black friends because it was a common struggle, so to speak. Um, but being different is where I really struggled. Kids were wearing certain clothes, they looked a certain way. And I think the time in which we came to the United States, what was emphasized was integrate, be the same. Where I think today's society is largely different than what it was then. But I remember when I met you in, um, in Orange County, we had started on this conversation of how Vietnamese men our age have a different view of growing up in a more homogenous society or within a much larger inclusive Vietnamese community versus how I grew up in a much more multicultural, diverse community as well. I remember just being very angry as a kid and just thinking, why can't I be like everyone else? And that was the driving force in terms of um, where I put my, mo where it took the most of my mind share and where I dedicated a lot of my time. And as a result of that, I started working at a very early age. So as soon as I could get my working permit, I got it, and then I worked a part-time job all through high school since I was 14 and a half, so that I could buy things to look like everyone else. Now, looking back, it was a very misguided aspiration in part, but at that point in my life, it was really trying to rid myself of that demon, so to speak. Do you still carry that anger? Not at all. As a matter of fact, um, it's a growing appreciation for who I am and my identity. And also looking back at the generosity of people that I've come across in my life and better appreciating what my parents did during their lifetimes. Um, my dad has now since passed away and my mom is still alive, but just really um, gaining a much greater appreciation for the sacrifices that they made. So both of my parents worked two jobs. Um, while I was growing up, my sister and I, we grew up around our grandparents, but we basically parented ourselves and my younger brother. But the reason why I took on a job is so that I didn't want to ask my parents for money to buy things to be like everyone else. And obviously, you know, I was working 10 to 20 hours a week uh, throughout high school and continue working even throughout college. What did you want to do when you were growing up? What did you envision your life to be? You know, that's interesting. Um, I get a lot of joy out of helping people, but coming over here with very humble beginnings, I knew I couldn't be a social worker. 
And so while I was in college, a friend of mine was interning at IDS Financial Services, which was the financial planning arm of American Express. And the profession there would be financial planning, helping families think about their financial resources and how to achieve their goals. So I took an internship there. And there I found a good balance of both doing well and doing good. Doing well because you're really helping families meet their financial goals. And then, uh, I'm sorry, doing good. And then doing well is that you're, you can have a very lucrative career over time as a result and live very comfortably. What exactly does a wealth manager do? I think if you think about financial services and the wealth management industry, it spans an entire gamut from do it yourself at a discount broker dealer all the way through full service at a large bulge bracket firm, whether it be a private bank, a trust company, or otherwise. And so in general, what you're trying to do is if you're doing it yourself, you have your financial resources and you have goals associated with it. If you're doing it yourself, there may be software at the financial firm that you have an account and they'll ask you to put in inputs regarding how much money you have and what your goals and they'll help you back into some type of portfolio. Or if you're somewhat financially sophisticated, you may be picking your own individual stocks. You take that to the opposite extreme, which is where I typically um, work with clients in a full service manner. We think about your overall um, balance sheet, both assets and liabilities. We think about protection. Are you adequately protected for the assets you have or the risks that you have within your life? Um, what are your goals in the longer term? How do you take advantage of current tax law to optimize your balance sheet to potentially save in taxes at a future date? How do you locate specific assets on your balance sheet to ensure that they grow um, at, the, at the appropriate rate to meet that goal? Um, obviously, money for yourself versus money that you're leaving with your children can take on very different risk parameters. So we help our clients figure out all of that, basically to optimize their overall financial life and to make sure that they're well prepared and um, the goals that they have identified, you take on the least amount of risk possible to accomplish those goals. I don't think it's necessarily how much money you make or how much assets you have, whether you pick what sounds like a robo investment app, like Wealthfront. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to go into that name of the app, but because I use Wealthfront. And the other end of it is sort of where you are with the full management of uh, people's finances. I don't think money or how much of it really has to do with this, is it? Or is it how sophisticated the client is that they choose one way or another? I mean, what what really distinguishes a person going into the do-it-yourself versus the full management side? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if you think about your balance sheet, the more you have, the more complex it may be. Right. So, as you know, current estate laws enable you to pass on money um, during your life, uh, approaching 12 million, I believe, per person. So 24 million per couple. Don't quote me on that because it, it rises with inflation. But if you have wealth that is greater than that lifetime gift exclusion, then there's a lot of planning that can be done to help you save on future taxes. Um, another thing is the more complex your balance sheet is. Right? Some people may have boats, motorcycles, other expensive toys. With that comes potential liability. How do you protect yourself against that? And, and um, how do you plan for things that may be unexpected? Right? If you're a high income earner, what happens if you become disabled? What happens if you become incapacitated? How do you protect that income? And so every family can use planning some families may have more zeros than other families, but I think to do it yourself, you would have to be very well-versed with the stock market, the bond market, insurance markets, estate and trusts um, planning, which is typically done by an attorney. How do you structure a trust? What are the instructions? If something were to happen to you, what, who takes care of your children? Who takes care of your money? So there are a lot of soft issues as well as issues that can be solved by a robo-advisor, so to speak. But that's where I think um, even for the most sophisticated people in the world, let's say hedge fund managers and private equity managers, they know that their core competency is investments. But when it comes to the legal aspects, 
they will typically still find someone to help them harness or, or uh, bring all of those resources together to help them. Can you walk me through how the money flows from when a client sits in your office and sits with the front of the house, so to speak, and gives you the check? And how does that money move down into all the way down into investing? Yeah, so from from my vantage point, we do a lot of upfront work with our clients, helping them um, gather all of the necessary information to build out a net worth statement and a balance sheet. That includes cars, toys, any liabilities, mortgages, loans, um, how much they spend. Uh, we can help with a monthly budget, but we collect all of this information upfront. We collect all of the statements from banks, broker dealers, other financial services providers, and then that is the baseline. The next part is identifying goals. What are your goals? Um, during your lifetime, you earn money, you save money, you may sell a company, you may amass wealth. However, upon your demise, there are three interested parties. You have Uncle Sam, you have your children, and potentially charity or philanthropy. Our goal is to help you identify what of those three buckets do you wanna fill and with how much, and what is the process or what is the plan we can put in place to help optimize that at some future point? Obviously, many people don't optimize to pay more taxes. So it's typically, how do I optimize what I leave my children or how do I optimize uh, what I will leave to charity upon my demise? Most, not most, but I think generally speaking, when I think of Vietnamese people, we would never choose charity over our, our, over our children, right? Why do you think Americans would choose to give their wealth to charity and not to their children? I actually think it's changing, right? So if you think about Vietnamese families in the United States, right? 1975, we were basically the settlers, right? We were the first people here. And you and I represent generation one, one and a half. I think as time progresses, um, that ideology may change. So if you think about our parents and most of our parents' ideology, it was survival, right? A lot of people give out of excess, not out of core, meaning if I have an extra something, I'm going to give it away. And I think in that regard, Vietnamese people are very charitable with each other within our community. We tend to really help each other, but it's mainly out of excess. But as you amass wealth, as you build wealth over time, then that ideology may change. So I really think that Vietnamese people will become a lot more philanthropically inclined as there is more excess um, in their lives, so to speak. I mean, my parents couldn't donate anything to anyone. We would donate old clothes, but there's no way my mom would have cut a check to even like Red Cross. We would give to our church because we're Catholic by faith. But outside of that, there was not much excess to give. It was more about how do we make ends meet? And so um, I think a part of it is just based on how many generations we've been here and what level of success we've been able to achieve. But I've already started to work with my own children on how to be giving people, how to help the community around you, whether it be treasure, time, talent is typically the three, right? And so how do you uplift the community around you? How do you contribute to make the world a better place? Why is that important to you? I think um, coming here in 1975, knowing no English, uh, we were the recipient of a lot of generosity of people around us. So we came through Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. We were sponsored by Catholic Church in Butler, PA, and they paid for our housing. We moved to Columbia, Maryland, and uh, we did start off on welfare and, uh, and uh, had government assistance. And over time, as my parents got on their feet, um, that's when you, know, you, you realize how blessed you were to leave a war-torn communist country and come here with this amount or this level of opportunity. So having benefited from that, um, I think that it is required of us to think about how we can help other people who may be struggling like us when we got here, 
to help them bootstrap themselves, to help them pull themselves up uh, and be productive members in society as we are as well. So that's really um, how I think of it and why I spend a lot of time working with charities, spending time on boards and so on. Going back to the flow of the money, how does wealth management companies actually make their money? Yeah, so, well, actually I didn't answer your other question, so I'll go back to that first. That, well, first is identifying all of the goals and everything, but then once you identify all that, you think about what is an appropriate portfolio and then you agree upon a growth, a risk profile for that particular individual or family. Once you identify that portfolio, it's not set in stone, right? So you typically will have in general, two asset classes, stocks and bonds. And depending on your level of wealth, you may include alternatives like private equity, hedge funds and other private investments. But what will happen over time as economies are changing, as markets are changing, we may in that portfolio, we stay in constant contact with all of our clients as to, uh, we generally do quarterly reviews just to review their portfolio and where their plan is. And then we make tactical adjustments in between, in between um, those meetings. But to answer your question succinctly, money comes in. How many accounts do we need to open to construct this particular portfolio? It could be a separately managed account where you see individual stocks. It could be a mutual fund that fills a particular allocation in the portfolio, or it can be an exchange traded fund that's going to mimic a benchmark return within the portfolio. And depending on what type of investment it is, it may require a different account, but it represents one big portfolio for our clients. So a check comes in, we divide it into its little buckets. We talk to the manager as to how quickly we want to invest, when we're going to invest. And then the rest of the management from there forward in terms of the shifts is all the responsibility of me and my team in terms of if, um, for instance, today the market, where's the market today? I think we are relatively flat. So the market is down half percent. The S&P is trading at 4,130. Where are valuations today? Do we have client portfolios that are out of balance and how do we bring them back into balance? Are there overweights or underweights that we want to express in our portfolio, for instance, US versus non-US, right? Credit versus core within bonds. So there's a lot of technicality to that as well, but we're constantly thinking about levels in how cheap or how rich a market may be. But what happens beyond that though, is that it's just not me sitting here outside of Philadelphia making that determination. There's an entire uh, team of investment professionals we have a chief investment officer that thinks about everything that goes on in the economy and everything that goes on in the market and helps provide us with insight as to directionality, where things may be going. We have the head of portfolio construction that helps us think about for this level of risk, this is what a portfolio may look like. We use that as guidance. I always joke that we have model portfolios, but no model clients. So we start there and then we start to tailor and customize portfolios based on their level of risk and needs for each one of our clients. So money comes in, open the accounts, allocate to the various um, underlying managers or strategies, and then actively manage and monitor the portfolio, meet regularly with all of our clients to report back how we did. Did we outperform? Did we underperform? Here's why. How does that compare with your goal? Are we on track? Are we behind? Are we ahead? And how do we continue to make shifts and changes? Now, where do you or the company make the money in all of that transaction? Yeah, so in general, if it's a managed account, there's going to be a fee associated with all of the assets that are under our purview. So we call it assets under management. And that fee can be anywhere, depending on, it's on a, um, a sliding scale. So the more you have, the less it is. The more dollars it is in absolute terms, but generally it's charged by basis points and it slides down. Got it. And is it where you, the more you make trades or moves, the more commissions that happen, or is it sort of like every quarter you, the company just takes whatever the profits are and divvies it, divvies it up to the client and, and keep it in the management company? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. We are associated with a broker dealer. So there is brokerage um, capability, meaning that you call me, you want to buy hundred shares of Intel, I'll charge you a commission to do that. Um, if it's a managed account, it's the latter, which is we 
agree on what that fee should be. And then it's just billed on a quarterly basis based on an average of the market value. Is there a way to screw up decisions on the investment side for the clients? Have you ever seen you know, your company messing up and losing a lot of money for the clients? I would say um, in general, if you're with a large firm, there are a lot of checks and balances in place through your compliance department and through your the regulatory environment that you sit in. The bad actors are typically not at the firm level, but at the individual level. And so one way to think about it is um, it's kind of like our driver's license. It's our series seven. So we're regulated by FINRA. You can go on broker check, put in the name of the person, the firm where they worked, and you can look at what infractions they've had in the past. What, what kind of infractions happen? So there could be just outright bad actors that steal money, right? I mean, you think about Bernie Madoff. Yeah. That was one instance in history that was a big learning opportunity for many. Another could be the client said X and you did Y. It could be that this is what you agreed to, but you didn't execute in those terms. And so what's paramount uh, in this business is transparency and communication, right? So when we establish that risk profile for our clients, there's a document that's signed. It's kind of like our, our marriage agreement. Yeah. This is what we've agreed to. This is how we're going to manage the portfolio. And this is how we're going to report back to you. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Because otherwise, there's no roadmap that we can all agree that this is the game plan here. I imagine how difficult it is to acquire clients for any firm. How does this happen? What's the mechanics of getting business for the management company? Well, it's, um, you know, it's funny because when I started in this business, it was cold calling. 300 dials, talk to 20 people, try to invite four people to a seminar and try to convert one of them to a client. In this day and age, that is a lot less effective. Not many people pick up their phone, if ever. If anything, um, spam bots are, are really good at, at, um, at sifting through calls. To me, especially with the clients that I tend to work with, it's how do you put yourself in the right network and in the right circles? to meet people that may, um, whose characteristics may be the families that you want to work with. And so a lot of it is referral based. A lot of it is networking. A lot of it is, you know, just constant doing a lot of meet and greets and being in the right circles professionally, personally, and so on to gain the exposure in that regard. Now you probably don't think about this much because you're already sort of fully formed, right? But as a young person starting out in any industry, whether it's the film industry, wealth management industry, there's a certain decorum. There's a certain way that we have to carry ourselves in order for people to trust us to hand over their sort of life savings or their portfolio over to us. What do you think are the components that make people trust you to say, when you're at a networking event and say, I'm going to give this guy my business? Yeah. Well, first, I think that we all have an opportunity to continue to grow no matter how well-formed we are. Um, and at least for me personally, if I've, I've always tried to continue to reinvent myself. I try to identify what are the things I dislike about myself and how do I rid myself of that? Or what am I lacking and how do I improve upon that? Um, you know what builds trust? Consistency, presence right? Just like in any relationship, the more consistent you are with your partner, the more they're going to trust you. The more that you do what you say you're going to do, the higher the trust that may be gained. I think that's one. Two is vulnerability. I think a lot of times, especially in this business, we sit, we sit across the table from what may start as being in front of a stranger while you're asking them to share their most personal and intimate details with right. you right? Making your, your own self vulnerable in that state will draw some level of reciprocity, so to speak. I mean, you think about it a lot of times with our clients, we know more about them than their own spouse and children. <laughs> we know the deepest, dirtiest secrets in general, right? Because money is a very personal matter and it's very complex. 
And so I think the presence, I think some sense of humility and then um, being human, right? I think a lot of times people view people in financial services as you're slick. I have to hold on to my wallet. I don't trust you. What are you trying to sell me, right? So the approach in which you take with people um, will generally serve you better in the long run. I tend to be a giver in life. So I tend to give and I tend to inform. I tend to give insight. And at some point, if people find value, they'll gravitate towards you because they'll say, I'm not getting that information from this person, but you're giving it to me. Or you called me about this before my own advisor has called me about it. And then it shows that you care. It shows that they are top of mind and they're important to you. You know, I mean this in all flattery and as a compliment, in Vietnamese, we have this word called phúc hậu. You have a face that has that defined phúc hậu, which is a gracious face, which is a warm face, a trusting face. You know, and that is a lifetime of consistency, keeping your word. And I imagine when you start out cold calling, you can't really display that, or it's not even fully formed on your face. People can't really read it. And it happens over a lifetime of developing this trait of football and it appears on your face and the vibe, you know, when, when you show up in, in a public setting, like when I met you in Orange County, instantly what I thought, Tuan has a, a football face, right? But when you start out in the beginning and you're doing the cold calling, none of that is there for you. So how do you sort of build, and I'm asking for young people, right? who are starting on the film industry, you know, when they step out on the stage or they step out in their field, they don't have this understanding that the character that happens, that shows up on your face is a very important thing that will carry you through the next 20, 30 years of your career. How did you get through and break through when that hasn't showed up yet in your early life? Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park You know, early it was tough, not only because you can't, you know, there wasn't video calls, but also my name. When you call them and you say, hi, my name is Tuan Nguyen, Tuan Nguyen, and I'm calling from IDS Financial Services. You can imagine the number of times that my first name is repeated back to me incorrectly. And it's a lifetime of that, right? So at a young age, you have to build thick skin in terms of taking rejection, at least in, a, in any sales role. Right, you, you have to build that thick skin and you have to understand law of large numbers and you have to understand um, that there's light at the end of the rainbow, right? So each rejection is just a closer to you getting affirmation from someone. It's also, I remember distinctly, I told you I was an angry kid because of my identity. I remember being Ocean City, Maryland with my cousin's family. And I forgot what I was upset about, but I was on vacation, we were in an arcade. And my aunt turns to me and says, what could you possibly be upset about? You are here at the beach in an arcade playing games. And she said, if you're gonna continue being angry, you're gonna be angry by yourself. Um, she's since passed away. But I remember thinking, life isn't that bad. What am I so pissed off about? And so from that point on, I really consciously thought about how do I present myself? Right? How am I being perceived? But that also comes from growing up looking very differently than everyone around you. Right? You're always worried about how you're being perceived, by whom, and what are they interpreting, and how do you make sure that you create a different perception at the split second when you meet someone. So 
being different, I think, being Vietnamese, that's also embedded in us because no matter what setting we walk into, we're always thinking, you look around, like, do I fit here? How well? How do I fit in better? What do I have to do? How do I have to act? And then, you know, the term code switching, you're constantly code switching, depending on who your audience is and what room you're in. Why did you never change your name or anglicize it? How did you find the strength not to do that? Having gone through this rejection, knowing that it's your first name. Well, I think because um, over time, I understood that it was a benefit to be different. I understood that um, I can overcome that struggle. I understood that if I wanted to be like everyone else, I have to be better than everyone else. I remember thinking when I first moved to New York City uh, from Washington, D.C., I was obviously very comfortable living in D.C., uh, but I packed a U-Haul truck and moved to New York City to challenge myself. And I always felt like I'm different and I'm going to have to work harder than everyone else by 10 to 20 percent to differentiate myself. Uh, one of the easiest ways for me to differentiate myself was to have a different name. Oh. So what was angry in childhood, I envisioned it to become a strength as I was getting older and more mature and understanding exactly what benefit it is to be Vietnamese in this country. That's a solid answer. Yeah, because a lot of us, you know, we change our names ourselves. I was born with the name Kenneth, but when I think about other people who have to have a different name to make life easier, you know, like Mick would be a, a, a perfect example of that. Or, you know, these are all names that uh, are very tough for the American um, or Delm. You know, those are names that are very difficult for people who have those names to exist in the world of um, America. Yeah. Are all wealth management companies the same? What separates them from each other? Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, it goes all the way from on one end of the spectrum. You have discount brokers where you do it yourself. You go to the opposite end where you have um, everyone that tries to do everything full service. I will say um, a lot of firms have scale in what they can do for clients in, in terms of treating a lot of clients really equally, delivering everything to every client. But the reality is no one shoe fits all, right? Uh, the joke is once you've met a family office, you've met a family office because each of them are very distinct. And so what's incumbent though, is that each family has to really identify what it is that they need uh, in terms of services and solutions and who is the best to bring that to the forefront for them, whether it be um, a bank, a broker dealer, a trust company, or a registered investment advisor. But ultimately, you know what it comes down to? The person sitting across the table, right? That's what it's gonna come down to. Do I trust that person? Do I not trust that person? Do I enjoy picking up the phone and calling them or do I not? I think that's the majority of it. Because if you think about the investment business, to your point, you could probably run, you can buy an ETF portfolio at a discount brokerage firm and pay almost nothing. But it's what kind of reporting do you need? What kind of human contact do you need? Um, how often do you want to be able to pick up the phone? Why do you want to pick up the phone? Do you want someone to just wrap this all up together and deliver it to you? Or do you want to be the one calling your insurance agent, calling your your um, trust and estate attorney, calling your tax person, and you doing that all of yourself? What do you think the traits of the very rich in the United States that you've dealt with, what can we as the Vietnamese community learn from in terms of accumulating the wealth, in terms of managing the wealth, in terms of like a mindset of progress financially? What, what, what can we take from your experience of living in that world for all these years? I... You know, I, I wouldn't say that this is a phenomenon that's in the United States, because obviously there's billionaires in every country around the world, right? 
I have found, and also, you know, before this call, you and I had talked about income disparities as well. And so one of the biggest benefits that we can um, impart on our Vietnamese community is financial preparedness. I don't like to use the word financial literacy because that implies that one is illiterate. So financial preparedness and what does that involve and who should know it? I will tell you that there are people who are our age that don't know much about money because they've never been taught it. They've never been exposed to it. They may have been shielded from it even. And these are wealthy people, right? I remember working with a family at, a, at one of my prior firms where the person was in their 40s and they had trouble balancing a checkbook. I mean, it's not literally, but they really had problems with financial concepts and, and how do I think about cash flow. And so one of the best things we can do is teach our children and teach our youth about financial preparedness. What is a stock? What is a bond? What is a checking account? What is a savings account? Um, what are the different types of firms? What is a credit card? How does a credit card work? How do you think about cash flow? What do you do with your debt money? All of our kids get debt money. Where does it go? What do they do? What is the difference between you buying a Nintendo Switch with it versus buying Nintendo stock with it? And how divergent could the outcomes be over time? Right? So it just starts with the basics, just with everything else. We all know that statistically in America, if you're not a proficient reader by the time you're in fourth grade, your long-term success diminishes greatly. And that's a part of the income disparity in different urban areas around the United States. And the same holds true for financial preparedness. How do you think that we can, as an American society, or even in Vietnam, close that income disparity? Do you think that it's a real possibility with the way we give as a government to the underprivileged? Do you think all of this was one day going to be balanced out or is it just going to get wider and wider and wider? I think the problems in Vietnam are different than the problems in the United States, right? Living, living in a homogenous society in Vietnam, the biggest disparity is the socioeconomic, right? You don't really have a racial disparity. You may have some level of disparity because, um, what do you call it? Like, um, not tribes, but you know, people from different provinces, smaller versus larger, and so on. There could be some of those disparities in Vietnam, but you're not going to have the racial disparities as you do in the United States. And so I think the answers are, are two very different things. I think the biggest problem in Vietnam, and, you know, the last time I was back in Vietnam was 2005. So it's been a while since I've been there. But the biggest problem to me there is post-secondary education. Right, Vietnam has one of the highest literacy rates in the world. I think it's 92, 93% literacy, but post-secondary education is very low. So how do you get children from the countryside into colleges or universities or to learn a vocation or to learn a trade to continue to move away from an agrar agrarian society? In the United States, um, this is not a political statement, but there's plenty of money in this country to, to solve whatever it is that, that they want to solve. You know, we can send $50 billion to Ukraine with a snap of a finger. Do people in this country have the political willpower to solve the problem of poverty across the United States? No, I don't think so. And a part of it's a political debate. Yep. Right? And I think the individualism of a country like the U.S. almost precludes the idea that the spread of, of income and wealth knowledge is even necessary. So that divide, that wedge is getting bigger and bigger and bigger with, uh, I don't know, with from my perspective, it's very little hope that it's going to close anytime soon. I mean, if you think about COVID as an example, and you just look at the willingness or unwillingness of people willing to protect those around them. Just on those, just on those bases, we saw how divisive that may have been, right? Whether it be staying home, wearing a mask or whatever it may be, 
you know, each family had a very different risk tolerance um, as it relates to COVID, but we saw how divided the country got over that or the country became, yep. how, how divided it became. What is the best financial advice you can give to young people today? And then what about older people who come into money a little later in their life or don't have much money? What sort of ideas would you give both camps? Well, I think um, one is just taking it in inventory of everything you have. Two is coming up with a long-term goal of what it is that you're trying to achieve. For older, for older folks, it may be, I want to be able to spend this much per month. For younger folks, it may be, I have this much and I want it to grow to this much over the next X years. Um, the key is to have a plan and to think through and accurate, accurately identify what those goals may be. And then from there, you can have a much more realistic conversation with yourself as to how achievable or not that goal may be. It's all in the planning. It's all in the intent of what you want. And it doesn't matter how much money you have or how little money you have or how old you are, right? I mean, the older you are, the less time you have. So time is one of the best mitigators of risk. So you have to take on a different risk profile, just as if someone were 22 and they want to buy a house at 25 and they want to be able to save, you know, $50,000. In that short period of time, how much risk do you want to take on? And what if you lost money or principal during that time? Right. So time is based on the goal, not based on age. Right. That's a good point. Do you have any vision for the next generation of Vietnamese Americans, Vietnamese diaspora, having yourself arrive at a place where you don't have to worry about survivability anymore? What What do you see for your children and what do you see for the Vietnamese new generation that are coming up? What would you like to see? Um a larger dispersion and vocation. We had talked about this when I met you uh, in Orange County as well, how growing up on the East Coast, we were all conformists. We lived in a multicultural environment and it was all about safety, safety, safety. So you have doctors, lawyers, engineers, um, dentists, pharmacists, generally, or accountants, if it were in business. So what I tell my kids is, don't put yourself in a box. Don't put yourself in the corner. As a matter of fact, think more broadly about what you can do and what you can accomplish and take the chance. See, for us, at least growing up on the East Coast, we didn't have the opportunity to take the chance, so to speak, because it was embedded in us to take a path of safety versus opportunity. I think the ideology on the West Coast is largely different in that regard. But to me, I think it's, think of the atypical field where you don't see a lot of Vietnamese. And if it interests you, find the people in that field to learn more about it. And then how do you put forward a path to pursue it? It's all about the planning, all about the intent. Why, why do you think that the East Coast and the West Coast Vietnamese are very different? Um, could you guys listen to Snoop Dogg and we listen to um, <laughs> Biggie? Biggie. <laughs> no, I, I think it's the... Yeah, those are fighting words. You know that, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it was about how much mindshare it took for us to want to be the same. And it took away from the mindshare of potentially thinking about innovation and entrepreneurship. Right. I mean, we we always had this nagging part of our brain that made us that consumed a part of our time and attention. Um, it also may be that. Culturally, on the West Coast, right, the wild, wild west, it was more of the spirit of opportunity and taking risk. But I I can't speak to the West Coast, but I do know that growing up on the East Coast, it was very much about conforming so to speak, where on the West Coast, there was no conforming because you were around largely, or you were you were potentially around a large Vietnamese community already, so you didn't have that internal struggle. And I think it's the proximity to all of this creative energy in Hollywood too. 
that really, Valley up north. Yeah. It really just makes a big difference that if there's a lot of people that look like you are doing these sort of on this edgy stuff, like creative work, you wouldn't fear going into that line of work because there's so much, so much, so much power in seeing, you know, we just had a, a Vietnamese dead party and about 300 creatives showed up to it. And we had, uh, celebrities from within the Vietnamese community as well as outside uh you know mainstream people like Ronnie Chang and Sandra Oh showed up and you know just being able to be in that sort of space inspires all of all of us on the west coast and I know that there's a lot of east coast transplants that come out here that are in that was were at the event and it definitely makes you secure knowing that yeah the money's not here yet you're struggling. You're really, you know, on the path to, to getting somewhere, but it's a, it's a start where it's not as, you're not as fearful as you were if you were just doing this stuff by yourself on the East coast. Yeah. I had a fleeting thought and now it just left me. Um, I'll try to remember what I was about to say. Sorry. We were talking about Snoop Dogg. We were talking about Biggie. We were talking about creative. Um, we're talking about the, oh, the, the the desire to conform from our parents was pervasive. Literally, I was told I was a failure because I was not becoming an engineer. Wow. Yeah, that you don't hear that kind of conversation as much out here. Yeah. You don't. You just and I think, you know, even in Orange County, you have so many Vietnamese businesses that are both in the food space or you know, whether they're singers in Paris by night or costume designers in Paris by night or Asia, there's just so much more exposure to entertainment and a different, just a different way of life that you can yeah. sort of gradually go from like the Vietnamese community on a, on a, on a smaller level and then slowly work your way into Hollywood on, on the mainstream level. So the possibilities out here really drive the innovators to, to really go out and do their things. And it's Silicon Valley is the same way as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, but the thing about the East coast is like, you know, I, I talk about this on the show quite a bit when you get East coast guys that, and gals that come out to the, out at uh, the West coast, they eat us up alive. Their work ethics is totally different from, <laughs> you know, they just grind harder. They work longer. They're just more serious about even the partying and the drinking is taken to another level, you know, compared to the, the West coast sometimes. I think the drive is very similar. You guys have a better time on the journey. <laughs> right? I mean, I think we all grind and how we grind is very different. But your journey may be a little bit more fun. Very interesting uh, point of view. I think it's a very interesting point of view. Yeah, it's, a, it's more serious on the East Coast. You know, things are are just much more the parameters are um, different. Uh, the way that things get done are different. I think on the West Coast, the the spirit is a little bit more loosey-goosey in touch with your emotions a little bit more. And you, we, we wear it on our sleeves more. We kind of like, we feel, we, we let our feelings out a little bit more on display. And I think on the East Coast, it's just a little bit, a lot more guarded and strategic and game theory comes into play with a lot of things, you know, think there's chess pieces everywhere. And I think in the West coast, things are a little bit more organic and people yeah. just kind of like roll with it, roll with the, the, their feelings. Well, I think people on the East coast being conformist, we typically go for jobs at big firms, whether it yeah. be engineering or otherwise. And if you exist in any big firm, you know, they're pretty good guardrails put around you in terms of decorum behavior, what you can say, what you can't say. And, you know, it's been a really good learning experience for me because as I step outside, um, I can see the disparities. What kind of disparities? What people say, what people do, how people act. And how it affects their career trajectories or how they're perceived and the optics behind it. Yeah, I mean, you just think about social media and what people say, Yeah, right? Even though I have a, I, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm on social media quite often. One of the platforms that I'm on is Facebook. 
But whatever I write on Facebook, I think about it as my boss is going to read this. Right. And how do I, how will my boss respond if he reads this? And then I hit post. Right. Yeah. You have a, a few more years of, of, um, of activity in you um, in terms of societal contributions, um, in terms of building community. Um, I, I noticed that with uh, Lynn and yourself. What kind of future sort of endeavors do you have, or if you have any, um, for the community on the East Coast for, for Vietnamese? Well, I mean, my, my biggest goals are I have two kids, 12-year-old daughter Aileen and Vin is 11. So obviously they are the biggest projects um, that I have going on until they successfully uh, get out of the house for whatever reason it may be, whether it be college or a vocation or a job. I think, um, I think it's beyond the, the East Coast, at, at least in my mind. I think it's unifying and bringing together the Vietnamese the Vietnamese community and how do we collectively uplift each other in all aspects, right? So for me, my vocation, there's not many of me in financial services. So one of my goals is how do I help bring the preparedness, financial preparedness level, how do I heighten that within our own community for my peers and for future generations? Um, I think it's critical for us to build in order to build long-term, durable, sustainable wealth is to understand exactly how money works and how we use it as a resource. I think the second thing is, as we are uplifting our own community, there are many other underserved, underprivileged communities as well. And to me, life has never been a zero-sum game. And how do we up uplift those other communities to lower poverty to raise educational levels, educational attainment, to make the country better overall, right? Because one person out of coming out of poverty helps us all. And that's how we have to think about it. I think here in the United States, there's a lot of not in my backyard. That person doesn't pertain to me. They don't affect me. But the reality is, we do. Whether, whether it's a shooting, whether it's someone on, you know, on welfare, it affects us all. And so how do we help make that better? And then the other is how do we make this globally better? Not only for our children here, but for Vietnamese children in Vietnam. How do we get to those rural areas and provide support and help to them? It's big, it's lifelong, but ideologically that's the direction that, that I think about and the direction where I'm headed. Do you think the wealth management system that we have here in the U.S. will ever apply or be brought back to Vietnam? If yes, if no, why? It's interesting. Um, I hope the answer is yes, because I just see how effective, having spent basically 30 years in this industry, I see how it effective it can be to help build wealth over time. But I think a part of the hindrance would be the regulatory environment or lack thereof, right? So Vietnam is still a communist country. They still have pretty strict laws on capital flows. And so if you want your economy to grow, how do you think about opening your borders to capital flows, both in and out? And you have to trust that your economy is going to continue to receive inflows because you're now um, I would say a couple years and uh, a couple decades into industrialization, right? Once Clinton normalized relations with Vietnam in 1992, a lot of companies outside of Vietnam have established beachheads in Vietnam, whether it be manufacturing, textiles, and now even engineering, software engineering, right? But once wealth is starting to develop there, how do you get your country people to build that wealth, to sustain their wealth? So now I think it's very restrictive, but it would be my dream to establish a wealth management firm in Vietnam to help Vietnamese people basically doing what I do here in Vietnam for Vietnamese nationals. That's a possibility, right? I think so. There's actually um, a delegation from Vietnam that is coming to the United States to talk exactly about this. 
if we were to industrialize over the next 10 years, whether it be manufacturing or whether it be um, with our capital markets, what do we have to do today to get on that path? Wow, that, that's an exciting bit of news because the generations that went ahead of us probably see Vietnam as a lawless place and not much progression as in what you just said. Because doing this work, I've realized that they're a lot more progressive than we think. Um, mm -hmm. And they actually have moved a lot earlier than we thought. For example, I think in the 90s, the prime minister brought a whole team over to the East Coast to study, you know, with um, the president of Harvard um, at the time. And they made a tour of all the Ivy League schools to figure out how they can incorporate academic freedom into the system that they have right now without, you know, without it getting out of, out of control. Right. How do we empower the students without a runaway train of, of, of protests and stuff like that to, to rebel? So I think. You know, within their framework, they're figuring things out and now learning about what you're saying about sending a delegation over to figure out this infrastructure is it's a, a, a it's welcome news for me. Oh, I'm I am very confident that Vietnam's economy will continue to grow. Well into the future, right? They have population growth, high literacy, um, a lot of arable land, a lot of land that can be developed. A lot of entrepreneurs, both there and here, interested. And so it's it's going to be a much greater country in the future than where it is today. And it's already progressed a lot from where it came from. And so what you see, though, is a continued progress of the government, right? So may do back that we're in the government before are starting to pass away and the ideology is starting to shift. That's how you get a university like Fulbright. Right into Vietnam that is teaching more about the liberal arts versus STEM and everything else and enabling people to think potentially diametrically opposed to what the government may be thinking. And that's gonna make a huge impact in a decade. Yep. Tuan, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, as usual, I, I, get, I gain so much insight for myself. Um, and I'm fortunate to share it with our community. And um, you know, it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much for spending the time with me. No, the honor and privilege is mine. And thank you for doing the work that you do in uplifting our community. Your work is important. Thank you for the kind words. Thanks again, Tuan. Thanks, Kenneth. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Hopefully this is the last time you hear this ad, because with Chime Checking Account, features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. 
Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals24. That's chime.com slash goals24. Chime feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.